You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Cade Young. This is the WFHB Local News for Thursday, December 15th, 2022. The Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution. Later in the program, we have Civic Conversations, a monthly podcast collaboration between the League of Women Voters of Bloomington and Monroe County and the WFHB Local News. More in the bottom half of our program. It expresses support for the creation of a capital improvement board. Also coming up in the next half hour, the Bloomington City Council voted to move forward with the Monroe Convention Center as a capital improvement board rather than a 501c nonprofit. More in today's headlines. But first, your State House Roundup. Good afternoon. This is your State House Roundup. I'm Benedict Jones. Several candidates have put their name in the running for governor of Indiana. Current Governor Eric Holcomb has two more years before he leaves office, and once his term expires, it's expected to be a tight race. This week, U.S. Senator Mike Braun and Lieutenant Governor Suzanne Crouch announced their candidacy for the Republican ticket, both with a focus on education. Other issues like agriculture, affordable housing, and not to mention the other big issue, education. Education is 52% of our budget out of $17 billion a year. Post-secondary is another 15%. And we got to do better at that. That's a lot of resources. Well, I'm running for governor because I have a vision for Indiana that will propel our state into the future. Well, my vision for the future focuses on growing our economy, investing in education, strengthening our families and our communities, and then transforming government. Eric Doden, the former president of the Indiana Development Corporation, announced back in 2021 that he would run for the state executive office. When Holcomb's gubernatorial term limit runs out, the race for governor is expected to be a competitive race, drawing a large pool of candidates, particularly for the GOP. So far, no Democrats have formally declared their candidacy. Former state rep Christina Hale, former mayor of Fort Wayne, Thomas McDermott Jr., and former Indiana Superintendent of Public Instruction, Jennifer McCormick, have expressed interest in running for governor, but they have yet to make a formal announcement. The election for governor of Indiana will take place in November of 2024. And the recount has wrapped up for the District 62 race between Democrat Penny Githens and Republican Dave Hall. District 62 includes portions of Monroe, Jackson, and Brown counties. The election for state representative was narrow, with Hall receiving only 40 more votes than Githens before the recount. Official results won't be announced until the Indiana Recount Commission convenes next week. That's all for your State House Roundup. For WFHB, I'm Cade Young.
At the December 14th meeting of the Bloomington City Council, Attorney Stephen Lucas explained a Resolution 22-20, which would create a Capital Improvement Board, or CIB, to operate the Monroe County Convention Center expansion project. Most recently, um, folks from the city and county have been meeting to uh, figure out what sort of entity will oversee the operations and, and the, uh, the expansion project itself. Uh, the city administration has expressed support for a 501c3 nonprofit entity. Uh, both the county commissioners and the county council now have expressed support for a, uh, a capital improvement board, which is an, en an entity provided for in state law uh, that, that many other communities use to manage their convention centers. Uh, and so this resolution tonight uh, gives the council an opportunity to weigh in on this question. Um, uh, it, it expresses support for the creation of a capital improvement board uh, and encourages the city administration to continue working with uh, folks in the county uh, to uh, address any uh, remaining questions uh, left open after the commissioner's ordinance 2022-46 uh, was adopted. Director of Public Engagement Mary Catherine Carmichael said the office of the mayor would prefer to place the convention centers as a 501c nonprofit rather than take the capital improvement board route. The issue in question is simply uh, what form uh, of organization are, is it going to take to, to get that done most effectively? And um, it's after literally six years of study and talk, um, we've come to the conclusion that our preference would certainly be and strongly be a 501c3, but we understand too that um, well-intentioned people can have different opinions and that's okay. So happy to be with you this evening to further discuss this. Thank you. Monroe County Attorney Jeff Cockrell stated the county's preference for a capital improvement board, the CIB, saying that the mayor's office switched positions after the convention center plans were placed on hold during the pandemic. Some of us in this room have been part of this conversation of a convention center and uh, how it moves on and moves forward since I, I think the beginning. Um, I think I was not here in the beginning, but there are members of the audience, but I was really involved in the negotiations that were going on uh, right before COVID hit and everything got put on hold. And uh, at that point in time, we were talking about a CIB and so I, I see this this motion and what the what the commissioners did is just kind of trying to continue from where we left off in 2019, 2000, beginning of 2020. Monroe County Commissioner Julie Thomas expressed interest in moving forward with a CIB, saying the commissioners thought the city and county were previously in agreement taking this path forward. We were talking about a CIB, then COVID happened. And then when we came back to talk about the convention center again, the administration brought forward this 501c3 idea. A 501c3, unlike a capital improvement board, does not require a public approval, uh, public board, elected board approving budgets. It does not require public meetings. There are issues, there are other issues as well. Um, we put forward our resolution to clearly state we prefer going on the track of negotiating, because there's still more negotiation, negotiating the CIB. Uh, we asked our colleagues on the county council, they agreed. Um, we've, we've heard from the administration, obviously, they prefer a 501c3. Our question to you is, do you prefer that we negotiate on the uh, CIB track or the 501c3 track, not both, 
one or the other. We would like to know where the city's common council stands on this pivotal issue about which are we, which path are we following? They're very different paths. They're not the same. The resolution to support a capital improvement board passed by an eight to one vote with council member Kate Rosenbarger voting no. The next Bloomington City Council meeting will happen on December 21st. Up next, we have Civic Conversations, a monthly podcast collaboration between the League of Women Voters of Bloomington and Monroe County and the WFHB Local News. This month on Civic Conversations, we are joined by Kate Krushenk, political paper scientist for the university's archive at the Herman B. Wells Library. Kate joined the podcast to talk about the 26th Amendment. The 26th Amendment lowered the voting age from 21 to 18 for all elections, state and federal. We turn now to the December edition of Civic Conversations hosted by Jim Allison on WFHB. You're listening to Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County, and this station, WFHB. I'm Jim Allison, your host, and Becky Hill is our producer. Very pleased to say that you can find Civic Conversations every month on this station, WFHB, at 93.1 and 98.1 FM. Today, we're pleased to welcome Kate Krukshank, who is political paper specialist for Indiana University Libraries. And Kate will be talking to us today about the 26th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Welcome, Kate. Thank you, Jim. Let's start off, let's start off with um, amending the U.S. Constitution. What gives us the right to amend that U.S. Constitution, and what does it take to amend it? Well, the Constitution itself actually gives us the right to amend it in Article 5, and that starts out as, quote, the Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution. So obviously, they thought there would be amendments. So to be proposed, an amendment to be proposed, it has to be, be approved by two-thirds vote of both houses, but then it must be sent out to the states for ratification and requires ratification by three-fourths of the states, so 30 of the 50 states, and only then can it become law. So it's the states that have the final say. Well, they didn't make it easy, did they? <laughs> no. So, so how many times has it been amended, and have any of those amendments been rescinded? Well, we now have 27 amendments. The first 10 are what we call the Bill of Rights, and they were ratified together in 1791. The other 17 were ratified individually, so that would be 18 times that it's been amended, I guess. One of those, the 18th Amendment, prohibiting the manufacture, sale, and transportation of intoxicating liquors, so-called, was passed in 1919, but then repealed by the 21st Amendment in 1933. But that's the only case. Okay, so let's talk about the 26th Amendment. What, what, what is the 26th Amendment, and what exactly was the motivation behind it, and how controversial, if it was controversial, was no. this passage? <laughs> could, say, could say a lot about that. The 26th Amendment lowers the voting age in all elections, state, local, and federal, to 18. And I emphasize that all elections because ensuring that was part of the drama of finally turning to a constitutional amendment 
to accomplish that goal. Um, there have been movements within individual states to get the voting age lowered for at least three decades. And in part because young men were risking their lives in World War II and then in Korea and then in Vietnam, but they weren't considered old enough to vote. By 1970, there were 10 states and five territories that had voting ages lower than 21. Uh, interestingly, Georgia lowered the voting age to 18 in 1943, wow. and Kentucky in 1955. Massachusetts, Minnesota, and Montana lowered it to 19 in 1970. So there were pretty much steady ongoing campaigns at the state level, some successful, some not. Um, in the few years before it actually was passed, think about that context, 1968, 1969, 1970, and the chaos of civil rights demonstrations and you know every, everything that was going on. It became controversial in that period because there were a lot of people who said, they don't deserve the right to vote. And there were the others who had the traditional arguments. So at that point, it was very controversial. And I would just note, there's a, a wonderful book that came out last December um, that chronicles the, really the full history of this entitled Let Us Vote by Jennifer Frost. And she draws on a wonderful collection, our wonderful collection of materials that's gathered by some of the people who actually were the players in getting the 26th Amendment. Through. Okay. Now, some of these amendments seem to take forever, almost literally forever to get through. <clears throat> Was this amendment hard to get past Congress or did states take a long time to ratify? You seem to have some inertia going for it to begin with. Well, that's what's really interesting because the brief historical accounts will always emphasize how short the time period was between introduction and passage, two months, January to March. And then again, between passage and ratification, March to July 1st three months. And it sounds like it was all so simple, but in fact, the real story has a ton more background to it, a lot more players, and it's much more complicated. Okay. Read the book, I guess. Yeah. Uh, now, I'd like to talk about Indiana's own Senator Birch Bayh. Now, Senator Bayh played a very key role, as I understand it, in the passage of that 26th Amendment. What can you tell us about his role? Well, Bai was chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee's Subcommittee on Constitutional Amendments. That was later changed to Subcommittee on the Constitution, but at the time he was chairman, that was its bailiwick, Constitutional Amendments, and that was the first stop for any proposed amendment. So he was involved just by virtue of his position there. But he mm -hmm. also had a background of supporting lowering the voting age from his time as Speaker of the Indiana House in 1959-1960. But there's a bit more, and let me just give you try to give you a real quick bit of background on this. Uh, when the Voting Rights Act was up for renewal in 1970, Senator Edward Kennedy and some others decided that adding a, an amendment to that act, in other words, a legislative, a bill, uh, to lower the voting age was the way to go, rather than going for a constitutional amendment. And that was actually passed in July 1970. But it, and, and all the young people went out and registered people to vote, and the onslaught of young voters was seen as coming right down the pike. But in December, at the end of December, the Supreme Court said that Congress only had authority over federal elections, which meant that the states would have to separate registration systems and ballots for two populations. Oh, wow. And, yeah, which was huge. And Bai jumped right on that. He immediately wrote to all the secretaries of state inquiring about prospective problems and costs. And he published that in February as a report of the subcommittee, which provided really super concrete evidence that the constitutional amendment was really the only viable option. So it was a huge role in that regard. That was, let me just add one other thing. That was at the same moment 
that Common Cause, which was a brand new organization, stepped in to support the movement for constitutional amendment. And they funded staff to lobby both members of Congress and state legislators throughout the country. And he, they worked with by and with Common Cause to build the pressure that made the whole thing look so simple when they got to it. Well, that was quite a start for Common Cause, I must say. Yes, definitely. Very impressive. Um, Senator Bai also tried, but failed repeatedly, just always failed to eliminate the Electoral College, favoring the popular vote for the election of the president. What was his motivation there? Well, I, you know, I can't speak for him, but it, from from what I've read of his of his work, I think that that his thinking was that the Electoral College, like the Senate, we might note, gives disproportionate influence to states with small populations. And I think he saw its elimination as a way to ensure that every vote counted and counted equally. Okay. It was a matter of principle. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, okay. Most, Tell most us. For a matter of principle with Birch Bay. <laughs> yeah, I know. And hooray for him. Uh, tell us a little bit about the Political Papers Archive at the Herman B. Wells Library. What political characteristic characters are part of that archive? Okay, it has kind of an interesting history that the collections that are now in it started out at the Lilly Library because that was really the only repository on campus for valuable collections of papers that don't directly relate to the history of Indiana University. Obviously, we have the IU archives, but that's focused on Indiana University histories. In, in late 2009, Modern Political Papers as an entity was set up, and the collections of Bai and Congressman Lee Hamilton, Frank McCloskey, and J. Edward Rush were transferred from the Lilly to Modern Political Papers. Um, the Lilly does have some smaller collections, and they do have Charles Halleck's papers. But since 2009, the ones that the recent acquisitions have come to Modern Political Papers, so we have gotten Senators Richard Luger and Joe Donnelly. We have gotten Congressman Dan Burton, Mike Pence as Congressman, and Congresswoman Susan Brooks. And then we also have the papers of Indiana State Senator Robert Garton, who was president pro temp of the Senate for 25 years. And a, a growing collection of campaign memorabilia, some oral histories related to Senator Birch by staff, and it continues to grow, continues to grow. Well, so that's all quite of this, a All of this can be found by searching, Googling, Modern Political Papers at IU. <laughs> okay, well, that's quite a collection. Uh, what do you feel is the importance of maintaining this kind of archive? And once it's been formed, who accesses that kind of archive? And for what reasons do they access it? Um, I'll, ask, I'll answer you second, the second part of your question first. The people who access it generally are advanced researchers working on articles and books on particular issues. Um, but... I would really like to see them used by people who are just interested in how Congress really works. And here's my thinking. The papers in those collections are produced by the staff of a member of Congress. I mean, that's that's what those collections are. And they are the only primary sources we have for what goes on in that office. Um, everything in print is edited. Everything in the media is incomplete and possibly misleading. Um, and I'm speaking from my own education working in these papers, the memos that staff write on a particular piece of legislation or on their work with the staff of other members capture the dynamics of the work of legislating in a way that nothing else does, um, showing how they work with people of diverging perspectives to come to an agreement on major issues. I mean, it's really, it's inspiring when you read this stuff. Um, and I think especially in this era of distortions and easy lies, seeing the actual documents 
from the work of members of Congress can restore us to the reality of what means to, to keep a representative democracy going. Um, I really hope that we can find a way to attract people who are just interested in Congress to these papers. And uh, the challenge I see is helping them see the kinds of questions they have to which these collections might help provide answers. And that that is a challenge. <laughs> Okay, now you've already touched on this, but I want you to give you a chance to really emphasize it if you choose to. As an archivist, do you feel that it's critical for us to maintain the past and what it teaches us, and why is that? An archive preserves the documentary evidence of what actually happened. Um, many interpretations can be made on the basis of that, some of them conflicting, but the archive is what holds that basic evidence to which we can return. Um, and the 26th Amendment really provides a case in point. As I mentioned, most historical accounts dismiss it as quickly and simply done and focus on Congress as the arena in which that occurred, which completely misses about 90% of the story. Um, I mentioned that collection on the 26th Amendment put together by people who've been the young movers and shakers that made the whole thing happen. We got that collection last September. And it's full of, of, I've got a document by document listing online. Uh, you can actually track the scope and intensity of their efforts, the complex networking with other organizations, other people across the country, their efforts at both state and national levels. It's like a guidebook. That thing is like a guidebook to how to create change at the national level. It is just amazing. Well, you've convinced me. And thank you, Kate Crickshank, for telling us all about archives. And to our listening audience, thank you for listening to us on Civic Conversations. This is Jim Allison, League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County. The League is a nonpartisan, grassroots, citizen-led organization that's been fighting ever since 1920 to improve our government and engage all citizens in the decisions that impact their lives. Next month, we'll be talking to Dr. Laura Merrifield-Wilson, Assistant Professor of History and Political Science, University of Indianapolis, and she's also co-director of the Gender Center there. And she'll be talking to us about the increasing number of women in the Indiana legislature. Up next, WFHB correspondent Clayton Young reports on rising anti-Semitism, both locally and on the national level. He speaks with Rabbi Sue Silberberg of the IU Hillel Center and Gunter Jekeli, the Erna Rosenfeld Professor of Jewish and Germanic Studies at IU, about recent anti-Semitic incident in Bloomington. Correspondent Clayton Young has more. In September of 2020, an Indiana University student burned and vandalized a sacred Jewish object outside a student's home. The object in question, a mezuzah, symbolizes to the outside world the occupant's relationship with God and their home as a Jewish household. The article states the Bloomington police have the suspect in custody, and if convicted, he's facing a potential of 180 days in jail and a fine of $1,000. But will this punishment be enough to deter the next anti-Semitic incident? Gunther Jekeli the Erna Rosenfeld Professor for Jewish and Germanic Studies at Indiana University, isn't convinced. 
Um, so unfortunately, this is not a one-off incident. So I even saw personally like swastikas uh, on the um, on the sidewalk here in downtown Bloomington. And the Anti-Defamation League conducts research on trends related to anti-Semitism and is dedicated to combating extremism. In 2021, the ADL found a 34% increase in anti-Semitic incidents since 2020. The statistic includes reported cases of harassment, vandalism, and assaults. Bloomington is no stranger to anti-Semitic attacks and vandalism. In February of 2022, WTHR reported on racist and anti-Semitic messages sent anonymously to members of Jewish Greek life at Indiana University. And last year in particular, there was a lot of, for our camp, a lot of anti-Semitism. There were swastikas drawn around town. Students felt very vulnerable and um, were really deeply affected. And there was a student who faced harassment on her residence hall floor for, for being Jewish. Anti-Semitism has a long and branching history, breaching both sides of the modern political spectrum. Offensive caricatures and stereotypes of Jewish people often find themselves intertwined with popular culture, hence letting outdated attitudes flourish without further exploration. Because historically, Jews have often been blamed to do that, even from 2000 years ago, when Jews have been blamed for killing Jesus, which is a false accusation. But what does it mean? That means that if you believe in Jesus as the Son of God, that the Jews, in quotation marks, have killed the Son of God, and that can only be the devil, right? So this demonization has been there for a long, long time, demonization of Jews. Within modern anti-Semitic discourse, a document that remains unfortunately influential is the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. The United States Holocaust Memorial Museum describes it as, quote, the most widely distributed anti-Semitic publication of modern times, and entirely a work of fiction intentionally written to blame Jews for a variety of ills. The vandalism of the mezuzah and the trend of anti-Semitism raised safety concerns in the minds of local Jewish leaders. Sue Silberberg of the IU Hillel Center says that anti-Semitic actions have a ripple effect throughout the Jewish community. Whenever Jewish students experience this kind, any kind of anti-Semitism or hate, it affects us because we're here as their support, as their home away from home. So how can regular people combat anti-Semitism and religious prejudices? While the answer may seem simple, it doesn't stop at the source, radicalization. Instead, Tannenbaum, the Center for Combating Religious Prejudice, recommends a more peaceful approach. They recommend actionable practices like calling out hate as it happens and physically talking out one another's differences with fact-based logic. Resources for fighting anti-Semitism in your community along with the story can be found at WFHB.org. For WFHB, I'm Clayton Young. Support for the WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com.
www.thinkandgrowthacademy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky Schneider and Cade Young in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Clayton Young. And Becky Hill produces Civic Conversations. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. For WFHB, this is your engineer and executive producer, Cade Young. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thank you for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters WFHB wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for Big Talk. A one-on-one conversation with some of Bloomington's most fascinating people. That's coming up next on WFHB. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB local news volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB local news archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB local news. We are local, longer, 